The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. I love homecoming. I love the energy and promise of a new year. I love hearing the choir when they return. I have missed that part of my spiritual life. I love seeing all of you faithful people. You are those who, as our clerk of session, Greg Dow, put it to me this past week, you are those who have made a conscious and life-affirming decision to embrace this place, this church, as your foundation, as your spiritual home in this world. Welcome home. Glad you're back. Glad to be back. Let us pray. Loving God, as we turn to reflect on your word, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us grace to receive your truth and strength to follow the path that you set before us. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our first scripture lesson for this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 1, beginning with the ninth verse. Listen now for God's word to you. It is right for me to think this way about all of you, because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that on the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Our second lesson for today comes from the Gospel of John, this snapshot of a story describes the moment when people first decide to follow Jesus. Listen again for God's word as it echoes to our ear from John chapter 1, beginning with the 35th verse. The next day, John the Baptist again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. 
When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. This past June, in my final sermon before going on study leave, I did what I typically do. I tried to describe what things look like to me while standing in this pulpit. In making this annual assessment regarding the state of our church and the world around us, I focused on anger. I want to pick back up right where I left off. I want to start today by talking about anger because I feel like it defines the context in which we are living our lives. It, it flavors the soup in which we are trying to be Christ's faithful church. So I'm going to talk about anger first, but I promise we will get to love. So many people describe themselves today as being angry. A recent National Public Radio survey reports that 84% of Americans say they are angrier now than they were 10 years ago. We are angry with each other. We are certainly angry with our politicians. The Wall Street Journal reported just this past month on a poll that they conducted that revealed that over 70% of Americans say they feel, and I quote, a deep and boiling anger with the political establishment. We are frustrated with our leaders, and we are also bent out of shape by family members and friends who, because of their thick-headedness, do not understand or share our particular brand of anger. In turn, friends and family members are exasperated with us because we do not appreciate the sources of their anger. Instead of deepening human connections like we were promised, social media platforms seem to fan the flames of people's rage. I was speaking with a fellow this past week who said that his father spends a good bit of every day getting into angry arguments with people on Facebook. My friend asked his father, is this why you retired, Dad, for this? It's not an isolated story. That's why you're laughing. Anger gets its hooks into us. Anger bangs on the table. It demands a hearing. Anger motivates. Anger makes for mighty good clickbait. In this, my friends, we live in a pretty weird moment. It's a strange thing to contemplate. But at this very second, there are people in various places throughout the world who are being paid to sit at computer screens under assumed identities and fabricate stories for social media. These so-called troll farms have one purpose in mind, to stir up trouble, to make us angry with each other. Anger, we know, can manipulate us. 
it can take control of us. That's why we say, don't push my buttons. Don't get me started. And still, knowing that we're not wanting to go there, still, when critics of anger come along, we're loath to let our rage go. We wonder, is all anger bad? Isn't there such a thing, preacher, as righteous anger? Anger that's provoked by a clear wrong anger that motivates us to work on behalf of the good. Now the short answer to that important question is, yes, I think I've witnessed healthy and perhaps even holy anger. But things in this realm pretty quickly turn complicated. How do we decide whose anger is righteous? How do we know when someone else's anger is real or when it's fake? Why is it that we always tend to see our own anger as righteous, as motivated by a clear injustice, whereas we often find other people's anger to be self-serving or out of proportion or just plain misplaced. These musings beg even more questions. How can we tell when anger is controlling us? But when is anger a cynical political tactic? And when is it a legit call to action? Can anger coexist comfortably alongside faith in our hearts? This summer, I spent a good bit of time contemplating anger, and I found it helpful to read psychologists on the subject. They remind us right out of the gate, that anger is a secondary emotion. Anger is a reaction, a reaction to something else. When we are physically or emotionally hurt, when we feel judged or ignored or put down, when we worry over ourselves, our finances, our place in the world, our, our status in our family, when our experience is discounted, when our memories are questioned, when we feel an injustice has been done to us, when, when violence has been done to, to someone or something that we care about, typically anger follows. Anger is a response. It is a response, psychologists say, to the experience of pain. Now this observation should pull people of faith to the edge of their seats, because one of the most important questions that the Christian tradition addresses is, what should people do with their pain? Is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth the best ethic? Or is pain an endless cycle? You hurt me, I hurt you back, you lash out at a coworker. She passes the residual pain along to her next door neighbor. We who worship a crucified savior have put this question front and center in our faith. What is a righteous and healthy and sacred way to respond to pain? 
Now, it probably doesn't come as a surprise, but Christianity has never really lifted up anger as a healthy long-term response to pain. In fact, the church has long described anger as one of the seven deadly sins. So, So how did our favorite raw human emotion earn such an unsavory status? Well, early on, Christians saw anger to be a deceptive emotion. It's a response that, in the heat of the moment, can actually feel good, feel right, but its lasting effects are caustic. Anger will betray you. Anger eats away at personal relationships and ethics and the very fabric of community. The the troll factories that I described earlier are diabolical in their intent, but they are savvy when it comes to human nature. They know the toxic power of anger. Pour a little vitriol on the ties that bind, and whole societies will unravel. This may explain why. While there are examples of righteous anger in the good book, they are rare. In general, the Bible makes it clear that anger is something best left to God. And even then, Scripture repeatedly describes God in numerous places. The Bible describes God as one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Similarly, the Apostle Paul counseled people to let go of their anger by the end of the day. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, he wrote in his letter to the Ephesians. Give no opportunity to the devil. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. How many of us are good at practicing that? If lingering anger represents an opportunity for the devil, Our society has been keeping the prince of darkness busy, busy, busy. Why do we like our anger, love our anger so much? Why is resisting the pull and power of anger so hard for us? For some, I think, setting anger aside, has almost become an unimaginable proposition. Anger is the primary lens through which they view their lives and the world, and it's difficult for them to imagine approaching life in a a different way. Others flaunt their anger, sort of give you little flashes of it, uh, to signal that they are doing something good, that they're on the right side. These are the folks, folk who will repost an angry tweet. They'll congratulate like-minded people with a thumbs up and, and move on. Still others, and I, I find this group to be most sympathetic, still others actually use anger as a motivation for taking a concrete action. I have a friend who says that she sends a contribution to her favorite charity every time a certain politician makes her angry. This past week, I asked her, how's it going? She laughed and replied, I'm so furious, I'm going to go bankrupt. (laughs) I nodded. In a similar vein, I received, just a week ago, I bet you've received this 
kind of thing too, an email that asked, are you angry? And then the institution behind the question proceeded to ask me for money. Is it wise, I wondered, to use anger as a motivational tool? Actually, a better question might be, do we need to exhibit anger to feel angry to prove to each other that we care and that we are motivated to do good? Some argue that if we are not angry, visibly and viscerally angry right now, it shows that we don't care about the problems of the world. Anger is the only sane response to to gun violence, to to economic disparity, to climate change, and the plight of children separated from their families in detainment centers. And yet, our faith reminds us that allowing and even encouraging anger to motivate us as we face society's most difficult challenges is a risky play. No one in this country's history recognized this better than Martin Luther King Jr. King knew that engaging contentious issues while being guided by anger would ultimately undermine the civil rights movement. It it would undercut the hope that he had for bringing about real change. How so? Well, inevitably, King knew, acid drips, anger drips acid on the very ties that we must forge with each other, with, with all sorts of different people, to bring about real and lasting solutions. Anger undercuts our chances at success. And here's the thing, as King demonstrated throughout his life, setting anger aside doesn't mean we don't care. Setting anger aside doesn't mean we don't care. In his book, Unoffendable, Brant Hansen, Christian writer, puts it this way, relinquishing my right to anger does not mean accepting injustice. It means actively seeking justice and loving mercy while walking humbly with God. Hansen calls us back to the central teaching of the good book. As children of God working for the redemption of the world, the thing that motivates us The thing that puts a bounce in our step, the thing that puts oil in my Ford so I can keep working for the Lord, to hearken back to some Sunday school song from many years ago, the thing that gets us going as Christians is not anger, it's love. This is the calling Jesus summons us to, This is why we're here in this room today, love. And with that in mind, we're going to do a deep dive this fall into our core Christian conviction. We're going to spend the next 12 Sundays talking about love. Specifically, we are going to reflect together on what it means 
to love the things that God loves. Now, why focus on the things that God loves? Three reasons. First, while we all have a sense of what it means to love, the problem human beings run into is that we don't always love the best things, the right things. If someone were to stand up here today and say, I love throwing rocks off highway overpasses, we would all cringe. There is such a thing as an unhealthy love, a destructive love. When we consider love from the standpoint of faith, we have to grapple with the fact that God isn't satisfied with us loving just any old thing. Now, oh, wait a minute, I can hear voices. Wait a minute, are we willing to put constraints on love? <laughs> Doesn't religion always mess that sort of thing up? Do I really want to talk about the things I shouldn't love? Before answering that question, I'd like you to consider the alternative. As David Foster Wallace once observed, and I quote, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Foster Wallace observes correctly, I think, that, that the love of money, the love of power, the love of one's own intellect will all eventually betray us. These loves will consume us and leave us hollow. He ends this line of thinking with a subtle insight. Most of the things we worship most of the things that we love, says David Foster Wallace, are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day. Now, is that true? Have unhealthy loves slipped into our hearts? Are destructive forces running the show? Have bad habits taken over so thoroughly that they've started to feel, well, normal? Maybe it's time to take an inventory of the habits of our hearts. Why? Well, there are a lot of reasons. We're going to talk about them this fall, but let's start with this. As theologian James K.A. Smith puts it, you are what you love. The things that reside in your heart dictate the direction of your life. The things you love, really, really love, are the lens through which you view everything. Alice Anders, where are you, Alice? Alice Andrews kidded me about today's sermon title. She said, how many people have responded, if I am what I love, then I must be pizza. 
Alice's comparison to the old adage, you are what you eat, is a good one. This past week, a variety of news outlets reported on the sad story of a British teenager whose entire diet was composed of white bread and french fries. Only 17 years old, this young man recently lost his sight. Poor nutrition starved his optic nerve, and he went blind. Nutritionists tell us all the time, you've got to put good things into your stomach. God tells us all the time, you've got to put good things into your heart. Reason number one for reflecting on the things that God loves, we need God's guidance in making good choices. Reason number two. Reason number two for talking about what God loves is we don't always know what we want. Case in point, today's story from the Gospel of John. It's a peculiar little snapshot of a story. John the Baptist is hanging out on a street corner talking with two of his followers when Jesus walks by. Seeing his cousin, John exclaims, look, here is the Lamb of God. And immediately his students leave and set off in hot pursuit. Realizing that he's being tailed, Jesus stops and he turns around and he asks, what are you looking for? It's a big question, a critical question. It, it's, a, it's the sort of question that we have to answer for ourselves, answer again and again until the day we die. What does my heart crave? What does my soul desire? What do I want? What do I really, really want from life? What are you looking for? Befuddled, the disciples don't know how to respond. One of them blurts out, oh, where are you staying? <laughs> Jesus smiles at that. He, he smiles and says, come and see. Is he inviting them back to check out his hotel room? Maybe, but I kind of think he's inviting them to come on a journey and to see things that are worth caring about, worth wanting. Come and see what your hearts are craving to embrace. Come and see what it feels like when you orient your days around good things. Reason number two to spend time reflecting on the things that God loves is that our hearts tend to be sort of confused and restless. They are searching, as St. As Augustine put it, and they will not be at peace until they rest in thee. Reason number three for reflecting on the things that God loves is that we need the practice. Like those who have been eating too many spiritual french fries, we need to relearn how to see. In writing to the church in Philippi, the Apostle Paul says a prayer for that community. The prayer, you heard it a little bit ago, the prayer goes like this. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best so that on the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless. Paul prays that the people of Philippi would be filled with a love that overflows 
with knowledge and insight. And that's an interesting combo, right? We tend to separate love and knowledge. We put love in a, in a pile of human emotions and label it feelings. And we put knowledge and insight in a separate pile labeled human reason. Paul turns these two capacities and, and puts them together. And, and curiously, he, he suggests that love leads to knowledge and insight, right? First, you welcome the love of God into your heart, and then you start to see things in a good way. First, you, you focus on the things that God cares about, and then you discover that, that you're looking at the world in a new way, with new insight. Reason number three to focus on the things that God loves is that God's love will help us to see. Now, what does that mean? Let me tell you one story, and I'll be done. A couple of weeks ago, I found myself at a mall in Duluth, Minnesota. I am not a big fan of malls. Terrible lighting, stale air, grumpy people like me wandering around, wishing they were somewhere else. Nevertheless, there I was, sitting on an absurd orange cube, staring at a changing room door in the center of an old Navy store waiting for my daughter and my wife to emerge. My daughter was trying on back-to-school clothes. My wife was playing fashion consultant. At one point earlier in the day, I'd applied for that job. I passed a shirt over the door, a garment that I thought had clear potential. It was flannel, plaid, sturdy. Over the door it went. After a short pause, a peal of laughter rang out. I think I heard a voice say, what is dad thinking? <laughs> Moments later, my wife emerged to tell me that my personal shopping skills had earned me a promotion to a managerial level position. I was now tasked with the important job of keeping the definite yes, let's buy it stack separate from the return to the rack stack. So I sat there, balancing clothes on my knees, waiting for decisions to be made. I wasn't alone. On either side of me, sitting on different colored but equally absurd cubes were two women who were back to school shopping with their middle school granddaughters. I watched as, as the changing room door to my right opened and one of the mid-schoolers came out and modeled an outfit. Oh, the grandmother said, hand to face, fabulous, that's definitely a keeper. You look smashing. The girl beamed and turned and closed the door. Seconds later, the door on my left opened and another grandmother appraised the young woman standing before her. Turn around. And she did. Perfect, uttered the grandmother, another big smile. Back and forth it went. Clothes were modeled, compliments were given, doors opened and shut. It was, I'm sure, a scene playing out in thousands of different stores all across this country. It, it was not, I'm sadly aware, a scene that would play out for every family. But still, it was, for me, a luminous moment. This summer in Old Navy, under the crazy glare of fluorescent lighting, I saw something beautiful. I saw two women steeped in wisdom 
present in the moment, not wishing that they were somewhere else, affirm over and over their granddaughter's choices. I saw a pair of adults building up the self-esteem of two children, instilling each with a a healthy dose of self-respect. I saw confident young women beam at older women who clearly cared about them. I saw four people who, no doubt, know how hard and mean and angry life can be. Middle school, in case you forgot, is no picnic. And yet, as each fabulous and perfect outfit was displayed, a deeper reality was called into being. You're going to think this is over the top, and I can scarce believe I'm saying it, but I think I saw God at the Miller Hill Mall. (laughs) I definitely saw God's love at work in people's hearts, in ordinary, happens every day, but still are unquestionably holy ways. This, my friends, this is the stuff that God has crafted us for, created us for. This is the stuff Jesus beckons us to embrace. He knows that our hearts are capable of amazing things, luminous things. But before we get there, we've got a clean house. We've got to sweep out interlopers who've taken up residence in our chests, the lusts, the hatreds, and yes, the anger that controls our days. Are you in? Are you ready to let God curate your heart? And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best. Go into the world trusting in the love of God, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and clinging to one another in the power and holy solidarity of God's Spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.